So this morning's passage is from 2 Corinthians. We are in chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 966. For we know that if the tent is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is John Lambeth. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's great to be with you this morning looking at God's word together. Uh, our pastor Gerald is driving to the airport right now along with uh, Nigel and Andy Brandt for a trip to Jordan and Israel. So be praying for them that they have a good trip interacting with some of our missionaries and, and seeing some things over there. Um, and if you have a pew Bible, we're on page 966 if you want to follow along. Let's start off our time together with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come before you needing to hear from you in so many ways, Lord, that whether you feel distant or our hearts feel hard towards you, we pray that you would draw near and like a hammer shatters a rock, that you would break into uh, the places in us that we keep from you. Um, no one needs to hear from me, Lord, but we all need to hear from you. So we pray that you would speak through your word. It's in the name of Christ we ask these things. Amen. All right, so we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, moving straight through here. Uh, the last few weeks, if you've been joining us, we've been walking through Paul's argument and looking at uh, everything that he said so far. And I want to give a little context before we dive into chapter 5 by recapping some of chapter 4 the last few weeks. So back in chapter 4, Paul says that he compares us to clay jars. And by that, by that he means we're ordinary, we're fragile, and yet we're, we are these vessels that have a priceless treasure inside of them. And these clay jars that we are are crumbling, breaking down, and one day will just shatter into dust. And yet, when that happens for the Christian, something will be revealed. The breaking of our earthly jar of clay will reveal something inside. And it will become apparent that all the pressures and pains and struggles of the walk of faith in this life were used and wielded by God like a master 
blacksmith to form the imperishable part of us, the so-called inner man, just like forming a gold ring inside of a clay mold. And only when the mold is cracked open, then shattered and discarded, can you see the work of the craftsman. And only when we perish can we see the invisible and imperishable work of God, which will become clear uh, how much God has used our journey and our story and our sufferings to transform us and us as God's people. And while I think there's a lot of interesting things uh, and interesting questions that this passage we're going to look at today raises, I think the central point here is that Paul wants to encourage himself and his readers that even though life is hard and painful and often difficult, we have a home and it is not here. And you can even tell in reading this just how much Paul relies on and clings to this hope. I mean, this guy has had a very hard life. He has had countless sufferings inflicted on him. He's had so much disappointment, mainly from the churches he has planted. Also, he's had the heartache and betrayal of lost friendships, the physical and mental anguish of being persecuted, and the general struggles of the body falling apart. Paul was so beat down and afraid when he first came to Corinth that Jesus literally had to appear to him in a vision to encourage him and to calm him down. That's how bad it was. It says in Acts chapter, chapter 18, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Jesus came and comforted Paul as he started his work in Corinth because he was despairing and worn down. So this promise, this promise of a heavenly future home is not a concept to Paul or a theological argument. This is how Paul sleeps at night. This is what he holds on to. He knows that despite the homelessness that he must have felt as a missionary, always on the move, living in dozens of different places with no biological family with him, that there was a home that was not very far away after all. And it was a home that he could experience now in part by the presence of the Spirit in him, but that he was eagerly looking forward to. He knew that the presence in Christ, of Christ in him now by the Spirit was the promise of the presence of him with Christ one day soon when his journey ended. A few years ago, uh, my wife, Jamie, one of her good friends, lost her mother. And her mother was a strong Christian. And uh, I remember reading in the obituary that the daughter wrote uh, where she said, home will forever be where my mother is. Home will forever be where my mother is. And I just was really struck by the beauty and the profundity of that statement, that, that the idea of home and homeness is not a place, it can often be thought of as a person. And just how much that uh, feeling reflects and images God. And this was true for Paul. Paul. For Paul, home was not a place, it was a person. He says in verse 8 that his desire is to be at home with the Lord. That's it. That's the whole sermon. We could go home right now. If you don't remember anything else from this morning, remember that heaven is not as much a place as it is proximity 
to a person. And so as we walk through this passage, we're going to see that Paul's deep desire was to be faithful in this life so that he can be with Jesus and then attain the resurrection that awaits him and all of us who have trusted in Christ when God renews the world at the end of history. So looking back at the text in verse 1, we see that Paul begins chapter 5 by saying, we currently live in what he calls a tent. And this is a fitting illustration for, for Paul to use for two reasons, one of which was that he was a tent maker in the city of Corinth while he was there. And so it would have been an appropriate thing since he was always spending so much of his time working on and repairing tents, trying to extend their life, get the most mileage out of them. And the second reason this metaphor is fitting is because it seems like Paul is intentionally bringing to mind an image of our journey in comparison to the story of the presence of God in the Old Testament. So God begins the journey with Israel by taking up residence in the tabernacle or the tent with Moses until he takes up a permanent residence in the temple hundreds of years later that Solomon builds. So a similar journey for us. We are in this tent, our earthly bodies, heading towards a building prepared for us, our permanent home in the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. So it raises the question, what is this building? What is Paul talking about? And if you read this passage alongside with what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's clear that Paul believes that we receive our resurrected bodies on the last day, which is when Christ returns to earth with a voice of an archangel and the last trumpet sounds. So Paul isn't saying here that we we live in resurrected bodies in heaven while we wait. But for Paul, the promise of resurrection was so central to his thinking that he kind of jumps right past the intermediate state, although in verse 8 he acknowledges it by saying that we will be away from the body and at home with the Lord when we die. But he jumps right past that and he names our future hope as our resurrected bodily life with Christ in a body like his. Paul is looking at Jesus who went through death and into resurrection life. And he's saying that our story is his story. We go, just like imaged in baptism, we go from death into resurrection. And it's worth noting here just how little hope that Paul has for the tent, meaning our earthly home in these bodies. This tent is out of luck in Paul's mind. Um, as one commentator writes, he says, following Jesus on this side of the divide provides no immediate escape for death's burden in all of its multi-form expressions, including disease, injury, tragedy, and ultimately our own death. In other words, our hope is not ultimately in this body. The body God has given us is important, and we steward it as a gift, but it is not the location of our hope. The human mortality rate remains steady at 100%. And unless Jesus comes back, we all face that same statistic. And certainly God can, can work miracles and extend our lives, if he so chooses, in supernatural ways. Even like we heard last week from PJ's testimony with her cancer. But these temporary reprieves don't change the story of our tent 
bodies. They are all headed toward decay, towards breaking down, towards death. And God is not going to stop that process. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us, even though it might feel that way. It just means he has a different plan for us. He has a building he's prepared for us, and he's thinking about that, and we want to hang on to the tent. And so as we age, and I know there's many in our church family who are in this process at different stages, and we start praying to Jesus and saying, Jesus, my body is is falling apart. What he will normally say to us is, I know, keep going, you're almost home. That's what he normally says. There's exceptions. And along with that, there's many in our church body who have chronic bodily ailments that make everyday life difficult. Paul will later in the same letter talk about him having a thorn in his flesh, which is probably some sort of chronic physical condition that made his life painful and hard. And he prays to Jesus three times to remove this ailment. And Jesus responds to him and says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And I know that for many of you, God has said that to you as well. But as we look around and we see the world, it's clear that our hope is not going to be in this body. For Christians, for non-Christians, the body breaks down. It wears out. And although we do our best to take care of the tent and patch it back up and get some extra mileage out of it, it's never going to work. It's never going to ultimately work because God has a fundamentally different plan for us. Paul's teaching here that we have to wait to receive the glory of what God has promised us in our bodies would have been in direct opposition to the so-called super apostles who were teaching that God's glory was here and now in the physical and they were experiencing it. So they were saying that we've received the blessing of God in this, uh, in this body. And Paul attacks their physician back in 1 Corinthians 4 where he writes, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and we wish that you did reign so you might share your, rule with, share your rule with us. In other words, they were claiming they had already received the blessings of the new covenant in their tent bodies, by evidence by their prosperity, their success, their health. And Paul's response to them was, well, that would be nice because then you could help out the apostles. We're the, we're the scum of the earth, so maybe you could help us out, but it's not true. That's not how God works. As Pastor Joel preached a few weeks back, physical and material things are never a sign of God's favor towards his people. We already have the fullest expression possible of God's love for us in Christ, and there's nothing he can add to show us that he loves us more than that. So material blessings or hardships in life, while they're allowed into our lives as opportunities for us to trust God, they are not signs of God's love for us or his disappointment in us. They're not punishments. They're not rewards. That's not what God is doing. It's interesting, too. It's not just the the super apostles who have a hard time with this concept, but when we look at our own culture, we see that we put a lot of emphasis in the hope of this body. Tim Keller wrote that you can, the way to understand a culture 
is to discern its idols, meaning what, is, what does it worship? If you want to understand what are cultural values, look at what it worships. And our culture has so many ways of worshiping and putting our hope in the body. And it starts early. I had a student a while back tell me that she was not on Instagram because she, quote, didn't want to hate herself, which was great for her. But, man, that is intense, right, that they face that. And the average amount of time that a teenager spends on a screen is seven hours a day, not including homework. So just think how much they are bombarded with the message of what it means to succeed, what it means to have value, what it means to have the good life, and how much of that is tied into the body and appearance. But it isn't just young people. As we age, there's a new vision of the good life. It could be summarized for a lot of us as a lengthy, healthy, and wealthy retirement. That can be the vision of the good life for a lot of us. In other words, the freedom be, to be unencumbered by work, by money, or by poor health so that we can do whatever we want. It sounds great. We, can, we have total freedom to travel, to relax, to go to Jamaica, and just enjoy the best things that life can offer. And these things are not bad in and of themselves because most idols aren't bad. It's the way that we relate to them that, that kind of twists them. Right? So that, that when they start taking the central spot in our hearts and lives, they can sometimes keep us from obeying what Christ is calling us to do. Our culture will tell us over and over again that our home is here. We should do whatever it takes to prolong and maximize our life in our earthly tent. But Paul and Jesus tell us that our, to put our treasure somewhere else. Jesus says, store up your treasure in heaven. Because our experience here is fleeting. It goes by quickly, and what comes next is permanent. That's the argument. And what's interesting is to kind of pause there and acknowledge that both of these worldviews make sense. They're internally consistent, right? So if, if this life is all that there is, then we have to make the most of the tents that we live in. We have to try to squeeze everything we can out of this life, which means, honestly, we cannot afford to take on a lot of risk. That would be unwise. What if it goes wrong? So in a sort of secular or materialistic worldview, we, are, we learn to sort of signal our virtue to others while securing for ourselves the best possible lives because it's way too risky to mess up on our one and only life and trying to take on the pain of the world. We can't do that. We even have a phrase for this that I hear young people say. It's called living your best life. You guys know that one? Living your best life, which means doing what is best for yourself right now without thinking a lot about what other people think or need. So it's like you can't be burdened by other people's problems. Like live your best life. And it, it makes sense. If all we have is the here and now, we should probably live our best lives. But for Christians, we have a different worldview. The tent we live in is not our home. And what that means is that we are freed up to take the risk of it taking on the pain of the world. Even sometimes finding ourselves like the Apostle Paul, beat up by extending our loves to other people. We risk when we care and we extend the grace of God to others that we might be hurt by that. Even sometimes physically like Paul was. But for him and for us, it's worth the risk 
Because there is more than this life. And because, as we're going to see next, we're living not just for our own wishes, but for an audience of one person, Jesus. So if the first major point Paul makes in this passage is that our hope is not found in our current tent body, but it's our hope is going to be with Jesus when we die and then awaiting our resurrected bodies, the second point he makes is that what we do now in these bodies really matters. It really matters. So Paul lives in this fearful and yet joyful knowledge that one day he's going to appear before Jesus. As he says in verse 10, and he's going to give an account of what he has done, as he says, in the body, in this body. And this is why Paul will say back in verse 3 that he doesn't want to be found naked. He's using nakedness as a picture of shame. So think of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Ashamed, caught, and, and humiliated. He doesn't want to be found ashamed and not clothed in the good works that would give evidence to the faith that he proclaims. That's his line of thought. And therefore risk not attaining the resurrection on the last day. And I think this is sometimes hard for us to conceptualize and understand exactly how faith works with this kind of idea. And I think it's because in our culture, we often frame up faith as a sort of mental assent to something being true. So that is a pew. This is a church. Jesus died and was raised. Those are all true things, right? And that is not what the Bible means by faith. It's not cognitively agreeing with something. The Bible, when it talks about the idea of faith, it means active trust in the promises of God that produce obedience to him. So when you have a mental agreement without obedience, that's what the Bible, particularly in the book of James, will call a dead faith, meaning not faith at all, right? A fake faith. So here's a little story to help you kind of think about it. If you, imagine you went to get new tires, to get your tires changed, and you hand the person working there the keys to your car, and you say, I trust that you will change my tires, and if you do, I will pay you. And the man responds and says, you can put your faith in me that I will change your tires. And that's weird. We don't talk like that. But stay with me. When you come back, you give it the day, you come back. What do you look at to see if he was telling you the truth? You don't pull out your secret audio recording and like listen to how he said it or anything like that. You just go and what do you look at? The tires. You just go look at the tires. Because if his words didn't produce actions, that's all you need to know. He was lying to you, right? You don't have to overthink it. You can see the truth of what he said and whether or not he performs the action. If the tires are there, his words were true. In the same way for us, our profession of faith is a claim that God is working in us. And we can, just like Paul is saying, find assurance of our salvation and how we see God working, how we see him changing us. So Paul will say in verse 5 that it's God, it is God who is the one who has prepared for us the day of resurrection. And he's put his Holy Spirit inside of us as the promise that he will complete that work. So we can kind of check the tires of our faith and find comfort that God really is changing us. We can just look and we can examine ourselves. And that is meant to give us 
not a sense of dread or guilt, but a, a sense of assurance and peace that comes with knowing that the Spirit of God is inside of us and moving and working. So Paul meant this as good news. And as we'll see next week, he also meant it as news that motivates us to go out and to share our faith with others so that they can have that same hope. Okay, I want to close our time this morning with two main takeaways, two big takeaways. The first one is this. The promise of resurrection frees us to die for Christ in this life. The promise of resurrection frees us to die for Christ in this life. So we don't have to maximize the pleasures of this life in this earthly tent because God has promised us something better. C.S. Lewis wrote, has this world been so kind to you that you should leave with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Okay, full disclosure, that was my senior quote in high school, actually. I love that quote. Uh, Has this world really been that good to you that you're going to leave with regret? Isn't there something better to look forward to? I think that's true. And so, a few examples. So maybe for the high schooler who feels like following Christ would cause them to miss out on experiences that you can really only have once while you're in high school. Remember the promise of Christ, that there are better things waiting for you than anything that you would surrender in following him. Or maybe the person struggling with forgiveness, which is a sort of death in itself because you have to bear the sins of the person who wronged you and offer grace in return. It's taking on a cross. And sometimes it just feels like too much. But remember, you're living for an audience of one person, Jesus So then forgive and see the smile of Christ upon you. You, He knows what it's like to give grace to someone else. And he is pleased with our faithfulness, even in the hard things. Or maybe for some of you, you're a person who feels called to a meaningful sacrifice. A meaningful sacrifice in obeying Christ. Facing real risk, not virtue signaling, but like real risk that your life's going to get harder if you do what Christ is asking you to do. Remember that Christ has promised to give us what we need and that the hardships of this life when we follow Christ are preparing for us to enjoy the resurrection life God has waiting for us where we can lay those burdens down. Okay, one last major point. And it's that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee or the down payment of everything that God is promising us here. So we don't have to wait to see what Christ thinks about us at that day of judgment. And we don't have to wait to experience the foretaste of resurrection life. Those things are available to us right now by the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Paul says in verse 5 that he's a down payment. And he means that experientially, right? It's not a concept. He's saying, just go and talk to him. Experience the grace of God inside of you. Lean back in to Christ. The love of Christ is not something that we have to wait on until some future moment to access. It's available right now. The comfort he brings to us in the face of the trials is available right now. And the assurance, the assurance he gives our faith that it's genuine That's available right now by his spirit inside of us. Paul says that faith is not a lack of evidence. It's a lack of sight. 
It's a lack of visibility. But it's not a lack of evidence because we have evidence inside of us by the Spirit. We can access the security and the proof of the faith of God working in us right now, even though we can't see it. And so if you've felt the feeling perhaps of you're on this path home and you've gotten way off the path, and I've been there and I know many of us have, hear the voice of Christ calling you back to the path because that's where he is, right? He's, he's waiting for you and he wants to be present with you in repentance and faith by his spirit. So if you've felt dry for many years or perhaps some of you have never actually experienced what it means to trust Christ, but you can see the emptiness of life without him, remember that now is the day of salvation. Christ has called us to this walk of faith, but he has not left us alone. He doesn't want us to just try to like white knuckle it to the finish line. Every moment that we walk in faith with Christ, he has promised to be with us by his spirit. And what do we see ahead of us? We see not just the hard things, but we see the finish line. We see the presence of our savior. We see the redemption of our stories and our bodies and the hope and joy of resurrection life. There's a lot of good things to come. And that for Paul and for us is motivating to go and do the hard things in this world that God has called you to do. Not to shirk back from the, from the walk of faith, but to lean in like Paul did. So as we close, take some time today and reflect. As Paul will say later, test your, later, later in the letter, test yourself to see where you are in your walk with Christ. Draw near to the Spirit and let him speak to you. Let him call you back home. And join the walk of faith that Paul is on towards his heavenly temple. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I know that for, for many of us, the ups and downs of life have left us wounded and in some ways doubting your goodness towards us. But Lord, we know that you're calling us not to the redemption of this tent, but towards something totally new and totally different. And even though life is painful and sometimes there's physical pain and suffering as we approach its end, we know there's something good on the other side that you prepared for us. And just like your son who was called to walk the path of obedience through death into life, you've called us to that same journey. I pray for those of us who feel distant from that story that your spirit would draw near to their hearts today. They would feel you calling them reminding them of your love for them and, and pointing them towards their heavenly home. Father, we need your help, we need your grace, and we need one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.